how can it be that you would save a soul like me and like each of us? Lord, you uh, gave your son so that we could have life, so that we could have a relationship with you. And so we marvel and revel in your love. And Lord, we want it to shape how we think and how we act. So help us tonight as we think about your loyal love to us, that we would respond with uh, grace, thanksgiving, and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll be in Psalm 36. So you would do well to follow along as we go through this psalm. Psalm, psalm number 36. One of the great deceptions of Satan is that there is that he, he wants to get us to believe that there is no spiritual warfare going on. <coughs> he wants us to think that there, <coughs> there these ca- catastrophic spiritual failures are not really possible for us. But we know from Ephesians 6 that the nature of the Christian life is that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. know from Ephesians 6 that the nature of the Christian life is that we are engaged in spiritual warfare every day. That Satan, his demons, this present evil age, and even our own flesh are warring against our souls. And so what hope do we have in the face of the wicked who hate God and hate his people and are doing the bidding of Satan? What hope do we have? Well, in Psalm 36, David reflects on two main things. First, the nature of the wicked, and then secondly, the nature of God's love. And then he responds uh, by praying to God for help. And the greatest asset that we have against the forces of evil is, is God and his love for us. And so that's what we ought to be reflecting on. This is one of 12 wisdom psalms recorded in the scriptures. And um, it emphasizes the truth that God has as the means for blessing and it's written by David, as you see there in the superscription. Let me read the psalm for us. And, um, and we'll look at it together. Psalm number 36. This is the word of God. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. 
that have been thrust down and cannot rise. Tonight we're going to see that in the face of wickedness, the righteous treasure the loyal love of God and pray for his ongoing blessing. So in this theme, there is really the, the outline of the text. So the first four verses talk about in the face of, the wicked, of wickedness. That is, this is the nature of the wicked, how they live, what, how they think, how they act. Then verses 5 through 9 focus on the nature of God. So you see that in the second part, second line, the righteous treasure the loyal love of God. This is what we ought to be doing in the face of wickedness. And then finally, the last part of the psalm, verses 10 through 12, focus on our prayer for ongoing blessing. Do you see that in verse 10? Oh, continue your loving kindness. So this is how the wicked are. This is how your love is, God. Now please show your loving kindness to me. That's how the psalm is set up. So, let's look at that first part, in the face of wickedness, the nature of the wicked, verses 1 through 4. David begins by focusing on the nature of the wicked, that they do not fear God, in verse 1, and then they love to plan and accomplish evil. Okay, so first they do not fear God, verse 1. The wicked are evil to the core. Notice, it's, it's as if sin has a voice and it's speaking to them. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. It's, it's like this little voice that talks to them. And, and they, they listen. They enjoy hearing from him. And the reason for their attentiveness is found in the second part of verse 1. It's because they have no fear of God before, uh, before his eyes. That is, the wicked has no fear of God. What does Solomon tell us about the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. So what happens when a person doesn't fear the Lord? He's a fool, right? The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. The opposite of fearing the Lord is what the wicked are doing here. They have no fear of God in their eyes. You see, in the mind of the wicked, there's no need to revere God and His ways. The wicked's schemes and his actions will suffice apart from God. I'm, I'm going to accomplish what I want the way that I want apart from God. I have no reverence for God or any thought that God has any control over the, these things or that He should have any say. And so when it comes to a choice between good and evil, the wicked person doesn't even register, you know, what is this? What does this do for me? They don't fear God. They, they don't, they're not concerned about circumstances. They're not concerned about consequences. They're not concerned about how it affects other people. They're not concerned what it looks like in the face of God. All they care about is doing the evil. And so gladly, first part of verse 1, they listen to transgression in their hearts. And this indifference, this lack of fear of God, affects the way that he plans and the way that he acts. In verses 2 through 4, the wicked love to plan and accomplish evil. The nature of the wicked is that, that it has their actions, their thoughts, their internal evil has four primary effects on them. First, the effect on his conscience, verse 2. The effect on his conscience. Notice the first word in verse 2. It's the word for, which ties it back to the, the verse before. He's not starting out with a new idea. He's continuing an idea from verse 1. And in this case, I think he's talking about the idea of not because, but therefore. So he's saying they have no fear of God in their eyes. Therefore, it 
flatters him in his own eyes. That is, this, this lack of fear of God, this indifference towards God, it flatters himself. Literally, this, first, this phrase in verse 2 uh, would be translated, it is smooth to him in his eyes to find his sin to hate. So he takes pleasure in doing this sin and listening to his, his, this evil, this transgression speak to him. He, he takes pleasure in rejecting the fear of God. And because of his blind arrogance, he doesn't see how wicked he really is. Notice the second part of the verse, concerning the discovery of his iniquity. So it, it's like he doesn't even know how wicked he really is. And concerning the discovery of it and the hatred of it. So it's not only that he doesn't see his wickedness for how bad he really is, but he also doesn't even, he doesn't hate it. And perhaps if he did see it properly, then he would hate it. You see, people who don't fear God, they don't see themselves as God sees them. Instead, they, they do what Romans 1 talks about, which is that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That is, what has been revealed about God and what's been revealed about themselves and their sin, they suppress it. They know it to be true, but they suppress it. And they go on living in their evil and in their sin and consequently get into deeper and deeper sin. That's the nature of the wicked. In contrast, those who fear God, they see God for who He is, right? We start to understand more and more who God is. We start to see ourselves in in light of who, who God says that we are and our sin as God sees them. And, and what we want to do, and because we fear God, is that we want to step out into the light. We want God to expose our sin. We don't want to hide in the darkness. And although the light can be painful, we love to step out into the light and have our sins exposed. We love to be convicted about our sin in the bigger picture, not necessarily immediately, but but in the bigger picture, we want to have our sin exposed so that it can be dealt with. Well, the wicked have this skewed view of themselves. They flatter themselves with the evil that they love. And because of this skewed view, they both speak evil and do evil. Here's the, the next effect of the wicked, um, the, wicked, the wicked's thoughts and his actions. It is that it affects his speech. Not only does it affect his conscience, verse 2, but it affects his speech in verse 3. It says, The words of his mouth, mouth are wickedness and deceit. So if the wicked does not have the fear of God before his eyes, verse 1, then we should not be surprised that when he goes to speak, he's not doing it in terms of what God says is truth. He's not trying to get underneath of the umbrella of God's truth and make sure that what he's saying is in keeping with God, what God has said and what, what God expects. Instead, he speaks deceit. He speaks lies. He, he wants what he wants. He wants to pursue after his evil, and he doesn't care what it takes to get it. He will deceive and, and do whatever it takes. And, and that should be no surprise because he is of his, the wicked, the wicked person is of his father, the devil, and he is Satan, that is, the father of lies. So it's no surprise that, that his children are, are liars as well. So it affects his conscience, it affects, it affects his speech, and it continues. Verse 3, at the end of the verse, it affects his thoughts. At the end of the verse, it says, He has ceased 
to be wise and to do good. That is, he stops pursuing wisdom. These wicked people, you know, we might think Hitler types, but, but not necessarily, right? Because they can be people who on the outside look all buttoned up. They're all successful in business, in external ways. When other, wa- other people watch them, they think maybe, you know, they're a pretty good person. But the truth is that they have no fear of God before their eyes. They do not have a clean conscience. They speak evil and deceit. And their thoughts are completely corrupt. They do not pursue wisdom. They do do not pursue what is right. They are the dangerous Pharisees. Which, by the way, is much harder to detect than the prostitute. Right? Prostitute can see what's going on obvious that she's involved in sin. But the Pharisees are a little bit more, a little bit trickier to detect, right? Because outside, they are, they're all cleaned up. They're like painted tombs. A beautiful casket, but inside, they are full of dead men's bones. And those are the types of people that can do the most damage. So when we think the wicked have no fear of God before their eyes, don't we don't have to think um, just the, the openly wicked, although that's where it eventually leads. But but remember, Satan himself even disguises himself as an angel of light. I think if Satan uh, came into this room in human form, we would not be able to, to detect him because he would have all of the, the signs of speaking truth uh, except for he would mix truth with error, right? He, he, would, he would know exactly how to, to speak in a way that would tickle our ears and, and make it sound appealing, and yet what he speaks would not be consistent with the word of God. And that's why, again, so critical for us to know the word ourselves. So it affects his conscience, his speech, his thoughts, and then fourthly, it affects the, the actions of the wicked. Verse 4, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. So you kind of picture a person like this who's kind of dreaming about ways to carry out his wickedness. On his bed at night, this is what he dreams about. He, He dreams of ways that he can scheme and connive in a way that will allow him to do more evil, maybe even go more undetected than he was before. He just loves carrying out evil, and so he plans it. He follows the path of wickedness, and and he, he does not hate it along the way, does he? Notice the last phrase there. He does not despise evil. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't care how it affects people. He simply wants what he wants and will do whatever it takes to get it. He plans it, and he carries it out. So, this is not a lament psalm. David's not talking about a specific um, time or, or um, persecution that was carried out on him. This is not a lament psalm. Instead, this is more of a wisdom psalm. So what, what he's doing here is he's just describing how the wicked are. And then he talks about, he, he quickly transitions here in verse 5 and just really abruptly says, your loving kindness. So he moves from the nature of evil, the nature of the wicked, to the nature of God and his love. 
And I think what, it's, what he's doing here is he's answering for us, how do we respond in the face of the wicked? In the face of the wicked, the righteous treasure the loyal love of God, verses 5 through 9. In the face of the, wic- uh, of the wicked, or in the face of wickedness, the righteous treasure the loyal love of God. But where I'm getting that phrase, loyal love, if you've been kind of tracking with me the last several psalms, where we've seen that word loving kindness, it comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which is another word for loyal love. Maybe a better translation, loving kindness, not really a word that we use too much in our language, um, but but loving kindness is the idea of loyal love. That is an ongoing covenant, faithful love that's committed all the way till the end. That's the kind of love that God has for his people. And notice, if you look in verse 5, he says, Your loving kindness, O Lord. And whenever you see the Lord there capitalized with the lower caps um, uh, for the last three letters, that's always referring to the covenant name of God. So you're going to see that all throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's the word that's uh, from the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and, and so what it means is that this is God's covenant name. I am what I am. That's the idea of the verse. Uh, God, God is our covenant, covenantly faithful God. And so that's, that, that makes sense that David would use a name like that for God right after he talks about God's covenant faithfulness, his loyal love right next to the word Lord. And so as you're reading through the Bible, just notice that um, and, and notice that often what the writers are doing are talking specifically about God and his faithful covenant to his people. Now, before we, we get into this section, we might expect David talking about the nature of the wicked. And now we would expect the contrast to talking about the nature of the wicked, how the wicked think and act and speak is the contrast to that would be the nature of the, the righteous ones, right? Us, people like us who love God and love His commandments, similar to what happened in Psalm 1, right? Where, where he starts out with, blessed is the, the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He's talking about the righteous person, and he contrasts that person with the wicked, but the wicked are not so, verse 3, I think it is, or 4. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away, and so on. So there's the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Here, he's like, here's the nature of the, the, the wicked, and now he says, but think about the loving kindness of God. Think about the loyal love of God. And so he contrasts, instead of with the wicked and the righteous, he contrasts the object of the righteous faith, the faith of the righteous. So we would think, okay, this is how we ought to live, not like this, but like this, but instead, what what David does is he says, instead of what they do and say and, and how they act, this is what you ought to be doing. Get your gaze fixed on the object of your faith, which is God. And so in verses 5 and 6, he begins by saying the extent of God's unfailing love. And here are some verses that, that should be an encouragement to you and hopefully um, a help to you when you are in times of trouble, when you are... Um, looking for some anchor to hold on to. These are great verses to be reminded of. First, His loyal love extends to the heavens. The extent of God's love. His loyal love extends to the heavens. How far do the heavens reach? What, what's the boundary? When, what is the end? When you finally got to the end of the heavens, how far is that? That there is no end. No one can find it. 
The, the heavens just go on and on. And do you see the point here? That is the loving kindness of our God. That's the loyal love of our God. Where is the end of God's loyal love to us? How far do we need to go before we finally reach the end of God's loyal love? And the point is, is that His love is unfailing. That when God chooses to commit Himself to an individual, that His love for us will never fail. Notice the second part of verse. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. Like His loyal love, His faithfulness goes on and on until we can trust Him. And then he kind of uses these big images again, not just the heavens and the skies, but verse 6, the mountains. His righteousness is like the mountains of God. The mountains are these huge, immovable objects. Right? And God's, God's righteousness is just like that. Immovable. And then his judgment, second part of verse 6, are as deep as the ocean. They're like the great deep. Try plumbing the depths of the ocean. Try getting all the way to the bottom. What you're going to find is that God's judgment, His wisdom, is just like that. So, so we have this large view of God, the greatness of God's love and His righteousness and His judgment, His faithfulness. They extend to the farthest reaches of the universe. Right? As far as the heavens go, that's how far God's love is. As deep as the ocean, that's God's love. So David describes the extent of God's loyal love. And then he, he moves on in verses, uh, the second part of verse 6 to the end of verse 9 to talk about the pricelessness, the, the preciousness of God's loyal love. He says, O Lord, you preserve man and beast at the end of verse 6. God is loving to his creation. There is some kind of... Um, affection and care that he has even for animals. But but we know a deeper love even than animals do because we are made in his image and we have received a covenant relationship with them. Do you realize animals don't have a covenant, covenant relationship with God? They wouldn't know what that means. They wouldn't know what they're supposed to do in response to that. Okay, But we as believers know that love in a deeper way. And so he starts out kind of in a broader way that God has this general love for his creation, specifically beasts, but with man, he's got this loyal love. He's got this special care for them. In verses, we saw in how vast and deep it was in verses 5 and 6. Here in verse 7, we see how precious it is. How precious it is. How precious, precious is your loving kindness, O oh God. Is there anything more priceless than the loyal love of God? We sing a song called The Love of God. It's, it's greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And then the chorus goes like this, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels. Song. God's loyal love is precious. And because it is, Look at the second part of verse 7. We see that believers take refuge in Him. Children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Again, this picture of a hen with, with her chicks. This is us. When we need to be protected from the enemy, God is there to protect us. 
reason that we take confidence in God's refuge, and we love to do so, is because we know that God is trustworthy. We, we know that he is faithful in his love for us. We know that he will not turn us away. We receive security from him. We're not uh, abandoned by him or pushed off when we come back to him when we've gone astray. God's there to ready to forgive like the father of prodigal sons. In verse 8, we see that the loyal love of God satisfies our souls. So we find refuge in God's loyal love. And then we find satisfaction in God's loyal love. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them drink to drink of the rivers of your delight. So God generally cares for creation at the end of verse 6, and then he cares for his people in that he gives them life and, and that he, he gives them this satisfaction. He gives them this drink. This reminds me of Psalm 23 where the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? And what's going on with my cup there? It's overflowing. And I know that surely goodness and mercy will, will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You get this picture of God uh, inviting us as a guest to his table and him filling up our cup while he's protecting us from the enemies who are watching on. And that is God's loyal love for us. We find satisfaction in him. This cup that we have in God, this satisfaction, is the kind of uh, satisfaction that is both full, okay, think about it like a cup, and overflowing that, in that it never ends. It's, it both, it's both full and eternal. Psalm 1611 puts it this way. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you have this cup that's full to the brim, and it never runs out. That's the joy that we have in God. That's the satisfaction that we have in God's loyal love. In His love, we find refuge and safety, satisfaction. And why is that? Verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. So the reason that we can find refuge, safety, satisfaction, pleasures forevermore in the presence of God is because God is the source of our life. He is completely self-existent. He derives life from no one. And He does not have to take time to power up, you know, like we have to do for our electronic equipment. He doesn't have to be sustained by anything. And that's why He can be and is the source of our life. Acts 17.28 puts it this way, In Him we live and move and have our existence. So God is the source of our life. And not only is our life sourced from Him, but but the the way that we see the world according to His worldview is based on His blessing. Look at the second part of verse 9. In your light we see light. This light here, I think, is talking about God's divine favor. So in God's divine favor, we see things as they are. As we live in the divine favor of God, we see things how they're meant to be seen. You recognize that doesn't happen prior to to the time that we come to Christ. That doesn't happen naturally. That happens supernaturally by the work of the Holy Spirit when He illumines our minds. And He causes us to see the truth of the gospel, or the truth of the word, 
and the glory of the gospel and start to view all of creation, all of the things that happen in our lives according to how God has said they are and they, and they will be. So we have God as both our light and our life. And this, uh, this reminds me of John 1, 4, where Jesus is talked about in that same way. And the Apostle John describes Jesus in John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So as we receive our source of life, spiritual life, from God, we start to see things, we start to see things as they are in, in terms of uh, God's favor and, and God's, God's creation. So in the face of wickedness, we, we must treasure the loyal love of God and then pray for his ongoing blessing, which comes as well. So he talks about the nature of the wicked, verses 1 through 4, and then he talks about the nature of God's love. And now here's the expectation for us. Now what are we supposed to do with all this, right? If, if we understand how the wicked operate to some degree and we understand how God's loyal love is, what are we supposed to do with all this? And here's the answer. We, we need to pray for God's ongoing blessing. We need to pray for God's loyal love. Here, David prays for what God has already promised to his people. So God's loyal love is there. It's precious. It, it serves as our refuge, our provision, our, our abundant satisfaction. And so then we pray to God to continue his loyal love for us. This is how David reflects on these things. Now, why would we do what David does here in verse 10? Notice what he does. Oh, continue your loving kindness to, the, to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. David, did you miss what you just got finished saying? You just said that God's loving kindness, His loyal love, extends all the way to the heavens. And it goes to the deepest part of the earth and the deepest part of the ocean. There's no end to it, David. And now you're praying for it. You're saying, God, will you continue in this? Why would he do something like that? Well, I think if you, if you think carefully about how people pray in the Scriptures, uh, David is doing what, what believers and even Jesus himself would do, and that is that they pray for things that God has already promised. And the reason for that is because God often uses the prayers of his people to accomplish something that he's already promised will happen. Right? And I've used some examples in here before. I'm going to use those again and then add another. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. What are we praying for? We're praying for Christ to come and establish his kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years and then on to, into the eternal state, right? That's what we're praying for. Your kingdom come to the earth so that your will will be done here like it's done in heaven. That whenever you say something, it happens up there. So how it happens down here. We reject you often. The, the, the wicked reject you. But we're praying for a day when your kingdom will come to the earth. Where the kingdom of our Lord and will become the kingdom uh, of our Lord and of our Christ. And he will reign forever. So, so when we pray for that, aren't we already praying for something that God has already determined will take place? Right? Hasn't God already promised that that's going to happen? So here's what we could do if we believe that God is in control of all these things. We might just step back and say, well, why pray for these things? 
And this is what we can do here with David. David, God already promises loving kindness to you, his, his child. Why pray for his loyal love? And the answer is that God uses his people as the means to bring about what he's already planned to do. Or when we pray, like with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus. John, don't pray for that. Don't do that. He he did that two times in Revelation. Are you a fool? He's already coming. No. He prays that God will bring about what he's promised he will do. And this is what God expects us as his people to do. Consider the prayer of Jesus in John 17. He says, glorify me. God, glorify me together with yourself. Now, Jesus already knows that that's going to happen. God is going to glorify him. How? Through the cross and the resurrection, through the exaltation. Christ already knows that. God already promised that it would happen. Isaiah 53. And yet, what does Jesus do? God, bring glory to me and yourself through my life. He prays for something that already is planned, that is already going to happen. If praying to God to do something that He's already planned and promised to do is a new concept for you, maybe you haven't thought about it in that way, maybe you think, you know, my prayers ought to be for things that I don't know about, and they should. You know, sometimes we have to, in fact, a lot of times we have to pray for things we don't know that are going to happen. We don't know if our neighbor is going to get saved, right? But we do know that God's kingdom is going to come. And yet Jesus says, when the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray, he tells them, pray that my kingdom would come. So he's telling us to do that. And, and so if, if that's a new concept to you, you haven't really thought about in those terms, then let me encourage you that in your Bible reading this week and maybe this, this month, this year, pay attention to the prayers of believers. Pay attention to the prayers of Christ. And notice how they often pray for the very promises that God already gave, that God already said would be accomplished. This is what David does here. And I think we, are, we do well to follow his example. A faithful pray for what God has has already promised will happen. Now clearly that's not all we pray for, but that certainly should be part of what we pray for. Pray that God's purposes that He has promised will come to pass. So we can pray for things like uh, our daily bread to be provided. Right? We can pray for things like um, for the wicked to be punished finally. We can pray for Israel, all Israel, to be saved. We know it's going to happen. It's coming. It hasn't come yet. But we keep praying that way. Uh, In Revelation, I don't have the the text, but the tribulation saints are, are surrounding the throne in heaven. And they're actually praying to God and saying, How long, O Lord? How long, how much longer... Before you allow, uh, before you you bring about your justice on the earth, when will you, uh, when will you justify us who have been martyred for the sake of, of Christ's name? 
And so they're praying for something that, that they know is going to happen. They're actually praying during the tribulation period for God to accomplish something. And what the text talks about is, is the smoke of their prayers rises up like incense to God. And it fills up his nostrils so that as he hears the prayers of his people, it actually affects him and causes him to want to answer their request. And I think that's a picture of what our prayers do now. That our prayers serve as some kind of a sweet aroma to God. That as he hears more and more prayers of his people, he loves to hear those prayers and then respond. Obviously, as we see in other psalms, one of the great reasons that he does respond is certainly because he loves us, but, but also because he receives great glory because what do, what do his people do when, when they see God answer their prayers? Isn't that what all of eternity will be about, right? We will be, yes, there, eternity will be a time of rest, absolutely. Eternity will be a time of service. We'll be learning more about God. We'll be, we'll be uh, learning how to better serve him throughout eternity. But, but it will also be a time of worship. Those are the three aspects of our eternity. Rest, service, and worship. That is that we will come together and we'll just sing praises to the Lamb who has slain. Because we had prayed for many of these things to happen. And now for, forever we'll be remembering back to the times in which we were in trouble. And then God delivered us. God receives great praise from this, and so he loves to respond to the prayers of his people, even when he's already planned what will happen. Secondly, David prays for, the, for protection from the wicked, verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. So this foot of pride in the ancient Near East, vic- victorious kings would, as a way to humiliate their enemy, they'd take their foot and stick it on the neck of their opponent, usually the other king. And this would be a way of saying that he dominated, maybe something like you'd see in WrestleMania or something. But, but they've defeated the enemy. Shame the loser. And David's saying, don't let that happen to my enemy, God, because I trust in you and, and I want to see you, you glorified. Don't let my enemy be able to put his foot on my neck. I think he's probably talking figuratively. Instead, cause your loyal love to protect me. Maybe we might say it this way. Lord, don't allow my enemy to get the upper hand. Don't allow Satan to be able to, to get a foothold in my life. And then thirdly, David reflects on the fate of the wicked. Verse 12. This, this really um, is part of what a, a wisdom psalm is. This, this is kind of just a, a, um, a proverb here at the end. There the doers of iniquity have fallen there they have been thrust down and cannot rise. That is, those who don't fear God, those who don't know about God, who don't care about God, who love their evil, who don't love righteousness, then, then what's going to happen to them in the end? It's going to be destroyed by death. So reflect on the fate of the wicked. I have two, two points of application. First, prepare for your battle against wickedness now. Prepare for wickedness. Prepare for the battle against wickedness now. The time to prepare against the clear opposition of the wicked is not once you get into the fight. It's not the time to prepare. 
We need to learn how to trust God now in times of relative ease. So that when it comes, you're ready. Now, certainly it's much better to learn in the midst of battle than not to learn at all. But how good would a soldier be who didn't prepare for battle prior to going into the battle? Right, you know, I, I just, I'll earn, I'll learn when I get there. Or what about an athlete who thinks that he can do well if he just shows up for the game? Without putting in the time and the practice and the repetition. Or as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, about I beat my body and make it my slave. Right, so that I can guard myself against sin, so that I can win the fight against temptation. Why, why would we expect that we're just going to magically learn how to fight against the opposition of wickedness we haven't prepared ourselves before. But what about Job? What if he just waited to learn how to handle suffering only once the suffering came? Now it's true, Job learned a lot during that period of suffering in his life. And that's great. We should we should be able to learn. But but the point is that he was better equipped for that than most people would have been because he prepared himself before the suffering came. And so the time for us to prepare for the battle against wickedness is now. Secondly, and finally, the only hope in the face of wickedness is the loyal love of God. So reflect on it. Meditate on it. Think about how God's loyal love extends all the way to the heavens. That there is no limit to God's love for His people. Find refuge in His loyal love. Find satisfaction. Find it to be joyful and full and overflowing and everlasting. Find safety under His wings. Take pleasure in His loyal love. And then do as David did. Pray for His loyal love in verse 10. And what you'll find is that you're you're going to be praying to a God who is faithful and who loves to pour out His love on His people. His loving kindness extends to the heavens. His faithfulness to the skies. His wisdom is immovable like a mountain. His judgments are as fathomless as the deepest sea. So trust in your God. Find your refuge in Him. You will not be disappointed. Alright. My encouragement for you tonight as you pray is to think of one thing that God has promised that you know is already going to happen because God's promised it. And then pray for that. Pray for God to follow through on that. I, I could give you some more examples, but, but just think about that. And each one of you, as you have opportunity to pray in your group, think of one thing that God has already promised. Maybe use an example that I've already given, or think of something else. But pray to God for God to follow through on something like that. All right? Any questions or comments?